welcome everybody. Welcome to the Roadmap to Joy. I'm really, really excited to be a part of this. Um, my name is Baba Hawthorne. I am an LMFT and I'm also the Executive Director for Embark um, Outpatient Clinic in West LA. And I have the honor and the privilege of being your host uh, for this episode. Um, I also have a wonderful co-star. Um, her name is Stephanie Lucas. She is a clinical director at one of our programs in Bend, Oregon. And so I'll I'll go ahead and have Stephanie introduce herself. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Baba. Um, like Baba said, I'm the clinical director up in Bend, Oregon at our residential treatment facility. I am also certified in EMDR and an LMFT as well. So I've been working a long time in childhood trauma, and I'm excited to get talking with you about that today. Well, today, um, Stephanie and I will be talking about childhood trauma. Um, this is a topic that is really important and near and dear to our hearts as mental health professionals, but embark as a whole. And so I'm looking forward to just opening the conversation about what is trauma, dive into some different misconceptions, talk a little bit about strategies or things that we can do to support our children and, and their development and really tackle um, childhood trauma in a holistic way. So I'm excited to be able to dive in uh, with you all listeners. So Stephanie, um, why don't you start us off and just tell us a little bit about what is trauma to give us a baseline around um, yeah, what it might be. For sure. Uh, one of the concepts we talk about in EMDR specifically is this idea of big T and little t trauma. And I know that that concept is out in the rest of the world too. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of trauma, think of big T trauma, which is a big event. It might be a car crash, a house burning down, a dog dying, an assault. All of those things are kind of episodic. They happen, they have a start and an end, right? Oftentimes what we see in our office is actually little t trauma, which are little things that can hurt that happen over and over and over again. And they really change the way that we think about who we are. And when we're thinking about kids, we really have to broaden our perspective of what hurts and what does it mean to be who we are and what does it mean to be safe? Because kids have a very limited concept of that. Um, so sometimes when we're thinking about childhood trauma, we really have to broaden our window and look at those experiences that happen when we're little and how they can really shape uh, the person that we become and the way that our body learns to keep ourselves safe. Definitely. I love that. I love the way that you explain the difference between how children um, kind of experience trauma. So thank you for highlighting that. Um, I want to hear from you some of the misconceptions about childhood trauma, and then simultaneously, how can we debunk some of those misconceptions? Right. One of the things I see in my office a lot is parents feeling like they don't want to acknowledge that their child has trauma, or they don't feel the need to bring it up because they feel like it's their fault. And if we say that your kid has trauma, that means you did something wrong, or you messed up. And it's so much bigger than that. And it's so different and harder to conceptualize than just mom or dad did something wrong. Parent, caregiver did something wrong, right? That's one of the misconceptions I feel really passionate about debunking is that the idea that you've done something wrong or you messed up and it's your fault that your child is having this reaction. Um, trauma is a really broad spectrum. Trauma is a really complex thing. And so it's okay to note that there were traumatic experiences without us coming in and telling parents, oh, well, that's your fault. 
right? That's a big one for me. I don't know, Baba, if you have any common ones that you see. Yeah, definitely. I think also um, with the difference between big T and little T's, people don't always understand how impactful the little T traumas are. And so um, for those listeners who may not understand like the big T's, like we're thinking of, you know, um, assault can be one of them or like a huge medical trauma, breaking and entering, right? A really scary, impactful event. Um, but the little T's really center around relationships. And so I think um, when working with parents and families, I've noticed, especially, you know, working with families of color, um, the little T's are more prevalent and sometimes really harder to explain culturally, right? Because some of those little T's will be indicative of someone's culture um, and their upbringing and their environment. And so in, in my work as, as a Black therapist, but, you know, treating all, but really love working with um, families of color, I think that's what I um, um, experience most um, and having a hard time debunking <laughs> around the little yeah. T's and just, just proving that, like, little T is trauma, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, and I can imagine those little T traumas if you're in a marginalized population, that that maybe is just the story of like, well, that's normal, right? That's life of like, that's how we've gotten through. Mm -hmm. And it makes total sense that when we start calling that trauma, there might be some pushback to that. Um, Yeah, definitely. I'm curious for you, Stephanie, how do you help parents um, let go of some guilt um, around the fact that, you know, it's, it's my fault. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, hearing you talk, I'm thinking a little bit about the narratives that parents pick up, right? That, mm-hmm. oh no, it is my fault that my mm-hmm. child has experienced a big T or a little T, right? right. Um, and that guilt can kind of keep them stuck. Um, and so wanting to hear from you, how do you help parents let go of the guilt so that they are able to be more present and productive to support um, their kiddos? I come at it from a few different angles. So I like to try and talk about all of the different options that happen when this trauma took place, right? We had to line up biology and circumstances and the people in your world and around you for all of those things to happen so that this brain had this reaction, right? And it's really the brain just not feeling safe. And parents aren't in control of all of that, right? They could have had a big T trauma, but on that day, they were surrounded by people they loved. They were able to get good sleep. They were able to co-regulate with a caregiver. And that big T trauma doesn't lodge as PTSD or something that has to be carried forward, right? On the flip side, if they're really lonely all the time and they don't have a caregiver who's really attuned to them and they're being told they're stupid every day at school, that could lodge as a huge trauma, right? And it's just that coagulation of the things in their lives uh, that really come together to create however that that specific child is going to react to those things and, and kind of alleviating. You don't have control over all of those things, right? Maybe you're one human who is also providing for your family and can't be there every second of the day and can't control all the educators and all of those things. Um, Another way I like to think about it is like, they're also our largest tool for healing. Mm -hmm. Even if they played a part in that trauma, they are the person we are most able to work with to help heal it. And that's actually really powerful and really wonderful. And Mm -hmm. I really try and build up that strength because working together in collaborative is going to give their kid what they need, which was their ultimate goal to begin with. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm so glad you said that because what stood out to me is the word resilience, you know, recognizing that those who are a part of, you know, this kid's life can also be a part of their healing and their journey. And I think, you know, to your point, that helps with the guilt, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I unintentionally may or may not have contributed or been a part of that little T, right? But that doesn't take away the fact that you can't be a part of that repair. Um, and supporting them through their healing journey. So that feels very empowering. And so giving back to the parents um, their power, I think, um, is another way to help reduce some of that guilt. I'm curious to hear your perspective, Stephanie, on what impact can childhood trauma have on a child's physical health and then mental health in the long term? Maybe I'll take physical and you can take mental. We'll tag you in. (laughs) I love it. That's one thing that I really highlight, especially the younger the kid, the younger the trauma, the more we are going to see that manifest in the body. And that can look like difficulty sleeping. That can look like um, problems with toileting. That can look like uh, panic attacks. That can look like digestive issues, even like eczema, hair falling out, things that you wouldn't necessarily normally associate with trauma. The younger we are, the more our body is what holds that. When we're doing EMDR and we get down to what we call the really touch point or the exile, when we get down to that really soft core middle, oftentimes if it's a really young trauma, they go nonverbal, even as an adult when they're reprocessing, right? They're just feeling it in their body. They're having a hot flash or they're feeling dizzy or they feel like they're falling back into their chair. And that for me is a sign that that was just a really young trauma. And so I think when we're seeing some of these physical manifestations of trauma, recognizing that, okay, your brain was really just developing these parts of what was going on for you. So it makes sense that that trauma is lodged in that place for you as well. Yeah, definitely. I love, I love that. I'm I'm thinking a little bit about how that connects to the mental health um, effects long-term and yeah, for someone who's developing so fast and so rapidly to have experienced a trauma and having those physical symptoms come up, coming up, there's a lot of anxiety um, that they're experiencing and what that can look like is just rumination in thoughts, right? And sometimes that can also cross over into um, some compulsions, right? And so you see some OCD behaviors coming up. Um, Also generalized anxiety, right? Worrying about everything and anything because, you know, trauma is an interruption in safety, Um, whether it's a physical safety, mental, emotional, right? There safety, their world, what they thought has been disrupted um, by this specific event. And so overcompensating mentally to keep yourself safe. And so a lot of anxiety is coming up. And then of course that affects how you view yourself and how you view others, right? Maybe a narrative of the world is not safe. That's coming up. So how do I protect myself? Um, I've worked with, um, you know, gang populations before. And so I see that a lot, right? Like they coming into the world experiencing childhood trauma and thinking that this is what I need to keep myself safe, to keep my neighborhood safe, to keep others safe, right? I need to be in this tough, aggressive, you know, type community to make sure that nobody takes away my safety. Um, And 
depression and self-esteem, right? That how exhausting, I mean, can you imagine some of the things that Stephanie was talking about that a kiddo is experiencing in their body? They're going to be sad about it, that they can't play as much as they want to or can't have a sleepover because they're having, you know, um, difficulty going using the restroom, you know, and Reese's different things of that nature. And so having the physical symptoms just be so prevalent, that definitely does have an effect on their mental health. So yeah, that physical and mentally, I think is something that, you know, trauma can, can really impact. One of the things that you were talking about that I know we're thinking about, how can we best support parents in identifying this and working with this, right? Yeah. I know in Embark, we talk about the lid flip, um, which is a concept all over, you know, child mental health. Um, yeah. But thinking about how can we support parents and families in identifying those triggers to the lid flip when our brain is online, right? It's all working and we can determine whether or not we're really safe. And then maybe we have those triggers of feeling unsafe, whatever they are, that really tap into that trauma network. And when that network's been activated, our brain goes offline. And then all we're thinking about is how do I stay safe? And that's when our fight, flight, freeze kicks in, right? Mm -hmm. And so helping parents to really recognize that process for their kiddo, like what does the ramp up look like? How do I know that that lid's been flipped? How do I help that lid come back down and realize that they're not going to really be rationed with when that brain is offline, that we really just have to help them feel safe right? That's what they're looking for. Uh, whether that's physical safety, psychological safety, um, creating an environment where we can create that for them because we recognize that their brain has been really activated and that trauma response is happening. Maybe they're kicking us, maybe they're running away, maybe they're totally shut down and unable to speak and just crying. Um, those are all signs that that brain is really in that fight or flight mode. Uh, and the best thing that we can do is just be that gentle presence and recognize that they're, you know, they're working on getting their brain back online and arguing isn't helpful. Reasoning isn't really helpful until they're on the other side of that. Definitely. I think you put it perfectly to transition us into the next, you know, topic of like how parents and caregivers can create a safe and supportive environment for children who have experienced trauma. And so what stands out to me about that is consistency. I think we neglect how important being consistent as a parent and a caregiver is, right? You don't have to be right all the time. There is no such thing as being perfect. And I think the best thing that you can do is be consistent. Um, there's no bigger disappointment when you think something is there and you can't count on it to be there every single time. That too is an interruption of safety, right? And so if you're dealing with a kid that has experienced childhood trauma, constantly showing up for them in whatever way is best is going to be really, really helpful to help them be safe again. And then I think also mirroring, um, which is making sure your emotions um, are congruent with how you're feeling, your facial expressions, right? And so, you know, if you are angry, I think in an appropriate way, you know, be able to show and mirror different ranges of emotions for kids so that they too can give themselves permission to feel afraid um, or to feel sad or to feel anxious. Um, and also modeling that behavior with, you know, healthy coping skills, right? Like I always think about 
when I babysit, um, you know, little kiddos in my life, always like, yeah, auntie needs a timeout right now because she's very overwhelmed. <laughs> so we're going to take a deep breath and we're going to count to five. Can you count to five with me? Right. One, I'm modeling that, you know, it's okay for me to have emotions and feel overwhelmed, but also mirroring like what they're seeing and what I'm seeing too, as well. I think that's really what about you, Stephanie? Any thoughts around how parents and caregivers can create a safe, supportive environment? Yeah. Um, I think I probably have a little bit of a pivot on that because I do work in residential, right? Yes. So the kids come and live with us mm. for 60 to 90 days. And so we take a really holistic approach on that and we really go hard for the co-regulation. So we teach all of our staff and all of our therapists and all of our therapists work with our parents. We actually, our facility has a specific parent coach for this because we work mm. with a 10 to 14 age, um, which is a fabulous resource. We love having her. Um, and so what co-regulation means is that I can be in control of my body and my emotions in the space that you are in. And so when we get kids who are dysregulated, hiding in the closet, trying to run away, talking about how they don't want to be here anymore, everyone on that campus is ready to sit and just be with them and be calm and tell them that we're there and that we're committed to being there. And, that, and, and then we're teaching parents to be able to do the same thing. Right. So hard for parents, especially if you have a kid who's had to have a residential placement where you just feel so frustrated. And you're like, we've done this four million times. Like, can we just not today? <laughs> right. Um, it gives them that breather and it gives them that chance to get the reset and really reset their own nervous system because they may have some trauma. Right. From having to try and help this kiddo who's really, really struggling, uh, gives them the chance to, to breathe and to learn how to co-regulate and feel supported as well. And seeing the need underneath maybe the words and the behaviors that are coming out. Um, the other thing that we see a lot in residential that I would love to just really help, help parents support around is naming a feeling. Mm. I know it feels really basic and really simple, but so many kids will land in our facility and not understand the feelings that are going on in their body, right? Their stomach is flipping or their muscles are so wiggly and they just don't know how to name that. And so they do shut down and they do really struggle with, how do I tell people what I need? Cause I don't know what I need. Cause I don't know what I'm feeling. Right. So even just that really basic modeled language of that mind body connection, uh, being able to say what feeling you're feeling and then even then being able to leap into what you need uh, is huge, huge baseline work for kids with trauma, especially. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, to touch up on a little bit of what you talked about, I want to highlight residential um, and your program and what that looks like. So for our listeners who may not be familiar um, with the residential for kiddos in your program, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the amazing things that you were doing to, to help create joy and heal generations for our kiddos. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I am a recent return to residential. So I, in my very early mental health career, was able to work at the life coach level, which is the person who's waking the kid up and helping them get their teeth brushed and get off to school. And then went back to grad school for family therapy because I saw how important family therapy was for that specific experience. Uh, and then I worked at a different residential facility as a counselor and then did outpatient for a while in private practice while I had kiddos. And now I'm back as a clinical director. Uh, so to be able to see that full spectrum 
and say, what does residential do, right? Residential gives both kids and parents the opportunity to breathe, to really look at what's happening while we do the job of keeping your kiddo safe. So I know Embark has a whole spectrum of residential facilities. Mine specifically works with um, girls, trans girls, and non-binary individuals from 10 to 14. Uh, and then there's a lot of other specialty areas within Embark. Um, but we will take that population and we will hold them and keep them safe and work on school. And they get two therapy sessions a week and they get two groups a day. And they're in a community. They can work on their social skills. They can work on their regulation skills. And we monitor them 24-7 to keep them safe while they're working on the bigger things that ultimately they're going to be able to get home and, and get a fresh start with the family. And um, we're doing family therapy and, and parent coaching all throughout the week. So it's a really intensive experience, uh, but it can be a really wonderful reset for families who are just really struggling and, and in that survival mode. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you know, your program is just dedicated to providing equitable and inclusive care. And that's so important when we're talking about childhood trauma, because a lot of marginalized communities do really experience um, a lot of trauma with, within their families and also without. So that you have staff and a program that can help cater to the wonderful identities um, that come through your doors is special and, and very, very important. So kudos to you and your team for doing such great work. Thank you. Well, and that's trauma-informed care, right? If you think about like recognizing a child's identity and how important that is and that they be received into a place that feels safe for them, maybe for the first time, yeah. um, so important and so meaningful. And we just, we love being able to provide that for kiddos all over the country. Amazing. Two snaps on that. <laughs> um, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about structure and boundaries. Um, I know you're, the setting that you work in, you're able to provide that. Um, how can parents and caregivers right, provide that balance um, of structure and boundaries and the need for flexibility um, when dealing with traumatized children? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Oftentimes when we see parents and we're working from residential to transition home, they feel like the structure and boundaries that we want to set them up with are really rigid compared to where they've been. Uh, and it's also important to recognize a family, whether they have fluid or rigid boundaries, I think that can be traumatic in either direction, right? Mm -hmm. So a fluid boundary is like, oh, no worries, we can change that like all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then a rigid boundary is like never. You're always in bed by 8 p.m. And there is no exception to that. I don't care if you need to throw up. And so working with families on finding that really what's going to work well for them. Right. Sometimes parents have their own mental health that comes into this. Right. If we have parents who are neurodiverse, sometimes they really need rigid boundaries or they really struggle with holding rigid boundaries. Uh, and we really work with families to try and figure out what's going to work best for them, but also really creating that structure um, in the CASA model of creating a really consistency. And I know predictability, you said Baba earlier, is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely. Um, I love your segues here, Stephanie, making <laughs> this conversation so rich and full. Um, I've been thinking top of mind around caregivers, right? Because our listeners, most are parents, right? And caregivers and really wanting them to feel very informed, hearing what we're talking about, but also having some golden nuggets um, to take away. And so back to our earlier point about, you know, helping to relieve some of the, the guilt um, that some parents and caregivers can 
can feel around their kiddos having childhood trauma. I want to talk a little bit about how parents and caregivers can support themselves, um, because let's just take a moment to recognize that it is difficult. I mean, being a human in this world is difficult. And then also being a parent and a caregiver can have its challenges on top of having a kiddo that has experienced trauma. And so I'm curious around your take, and I'll share mine as well, in terms of how can parents and caregivers take care of their own well-being while supporting a child who is experiencing trauma? Well, we're biased, but we think all parents and caregivers should have a therapist. (laughs) thousand percent. (laughs) Um, But going back to that sense of guilt or it's not my fault, right, which is often the pushback we hear when parents are saying, well, I'm not the problem. My kids are problem. And we don't want to say, yes, you are the problem. That doesn't make any sense because this is a family system, right? But what we do want to say is that anyone supporting someone who's really struggling deserves someone who can hear just their side, Mm -hmm. deserves someone who can hear them say, this is not fair right? Or I wouldn't have picked this story for myself. And your kid's not the one to hear that. And maybe your partner's not the one to hear that. And your mom's not the one to hear that. Like that is the role of a therapist in that moment is to have a space just to say, this sucks, right? It's okay to have someone safe to say those things too. That would be my number one golden nugget. Definitely. (laughs) Trying to think of another golden nugget because that was exactly my golden nugget. (laughs) But to your point, you know, a little bit of, you know, background for me, I'm a clinician first and foremost before I am a clinical leader. But in my residential background, that was a number one question that I got is like, how, how can I help? Right. And when I always addressed, you know, going to your own individual therapy would be so helpful. I can't tell you how many times people were like, no, 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 anything else but that. And so I want to acknowledge that it can be really scary um, for parents and caregivers to take time for themselves to do a lot of the discovery. But if we break down you know, several reasons or contributing factors to trauma, intergenerational trauma is real, right? So whether or not we can be conscious or unconscious about that, that's something that is passed down through generation to generation. And to be aware of that, I think is really important. And so Mm -hmm. the best things that families and caregivers can do is really just take some time for themselves and do the discovery work, right? Like that is huge, 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 huge. I think there is some understanding around what your child is doing, the work that they're doing that is really important um, Mm -hmm. to also a level of self-awareness around what's my stuff and what's my kid's stuff, because at times it can blur and become really, really messy. And to, to get that support that you need as a parent and a caregiver while supporting. And, you know, it sounds cheesy. We've all heard it before, but it's so true. You can't pour from an empty cup. And so parents and caregivers, I really want to empower and and encourage you guys to find a way to get that support um, through some, you know, mental health professionals to help pouring because you're constantly pouring. And so we have to find some way and some time um, to be able to pour back into you. So echo underscore (laughs) highlight, highlight, exclamation point, exclamation point, really going to take some time for yourselves and doing that self-discovery and healing work. Your point really made me think about um, 
building a team too Mm. and made me reflect on a moment I had a few weeks ago. Um, I have a child with disability. And so we have a real team of people who support her and our family. Mm -hmm. And we were chatting with a mom who had some concerns kind of about what was going on with the school program. And I all of a sudden saw myself in her eyes Mm. and was like, oh, that's that fight. Like, that's that teen. That's that, like, please support my kid that I have felt too in my heart. Right. And it can be so exhausting and so hard to ask people who are in a professional role to say, like, please support my kid. Please help our family. This I need you to see us clearly, right? Mm-hmm. And just encouraging parents who feel exhausted by that, who are trying to build this team and trying to find the right people to keep going, right? Because yeah. that team is going to be what keeps you afloat. It's going to be the school counselor and the outpatient counselor and the family counselor and the peer coach and the yeah. best friend down the road. And yes. having a really diverse network yeah. is so much work. And I really want to acknowledge that. And um, in that moment when you really need it, it's going to be what catches you. Yeah, it really does. It takes a village, right? We keep hearing mm-hmm. that and, you know, create, be creative with your different types of villages. <laughs> you know, you have your educational village, right? That helps support, you know, your kiddos with education. You have your mental health, your physical health, right? Like all of these are important. And, you know, for some marginalized communities, you know, having that team is essential, because some families aren't safe um, to have that built-in team. So if it's not, you know, grandma, auntie, uncle, cousins, et cetera, know that you can handpick your team with some really trusted resources outside. And so I know some, you know, thinking about the Black community sometimes can be wary of, you know, different types of providers, but, you know, the spiritual religious aspect is like really important. And so when you were talking, Stephanie, I was thinking about, you know, working with a mom and her team was like everybody that went to church with her, right? We had the pastor, (laughs) we had, you know, the children's like choir leader, every single person, you know, signing a, a release of information for all those people to be a part of that. And so really emphasizing that it, it takes a community and to really, not be ashamed that you can't do it on your own. I think as humans, we're not supposed to do life on our own um, and more so raise kids um, and to be happy and healthy as we want them to be. It it takes a community. And so definitely want to highlight that. Don't be afraid. Um, This is not a mark on you that you can't do it. Um, Know that you need support too. Mm -hmm. That way you can take care of you. And that community is what builds resilience for our kids, right? That's what the science teaches us, specifically with trauma, is that kids who go through really, really traumatic situations, if they have even one caregiver who is attuned to them, who they can depend on, who they can rely on, and it could be the neighbor, it could Mm -hmm. be that teacher, it could Mm -hmm. be the choir director, right? That that person, if they can rely on them, depend on them, statistically, they're so much more likely to show resilience and move through that trauma in a healthy way. Um, And recognizing that's true for us too, if that we have that person too. So building that community is how we move through trauma and being connected to each other is how we help our kids in their traumatic, traumatized state. Um, It's important for all of us. Yeah, it sure is. I love that. Um, speaking a little bit on the community, I know I touched on like educational support. Um, during this time for our kiddos, school is 
so important, but like also like a huge, a huge part of their time. Um, how can schools and educational institutions better support children with a history of trauma, right? And, and how can parents collaborate with them effectively? I'm curious about what your thoughts are on that stuff. Yeah, I think the number one thing schools can do is learn how to look through a trauma-informed lens. Oftentimes we hear, especially with 504s and IEPs, language like defiance or behaviors that are identified as problematic or refusal. And if we look at it through a trauma-informed lens, we realize that those are reactions to whatever's going on in here, right? If they are having a difficult time because of a peer, because of an experience, because they're experiencing panic attacks, um, getting a school to start seeing that kid holistically uh, is so important. And starting to meet those baseline needs and recognize that school is very important. And if this kid is refusing or struggling in school for whatever reason, if we don't know the reason and we're just trying to like force a square peg into a round hole, that's not going to work. Um, and to try and really zoom out and, and look at that kiddo and see what's going on uh, from a holistic lens. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I completely agree. And something else that I always think about is having more mental health presentations um, that are developmentally appropriate for each age for the kiddos and for the teachers too as well. So I think about professional development um, that I know a lot of teachers have to go through. I'm curious how many of those are centered around mental health for kids and their development, right? don't think that they are a lot and they are i think coming from having those presentations be centered around trauma-informed care um what that looks like um what to look out for uh, um, behaviors from certain kids i think that's important to your point shifting the language to be less negative and more inclusive, right? Not always jumping for if a kiddo is experiencing behavior issues that they are defiant, you know, that diagnosis of oppositional defiance disorder. Um, I have some feelings about that. (laughs) But, you know, with that, it may not always be the case um, that there may be something underneath there. So Mm -hmm. some a lot more psychoeducation for the teachers and the kids themselves so that they know, oh, okay, when my stomach hurts right before, you know, my spelling test, this possibly is anxiety, right? And to your point, Stephanie, talking about naming emotions for the kids, they spend so much time at school. Um, How about having them learn that from their teachers and their peers and the administrators around. And so if I was president of the United States, that's something that I would instate in our educational institution um, is a lot more robust mental health education and support both for the kiddos and for um, the teachers as well. And then more more, uh, mental health staff. Um, I know some schools just have like one school psychologist that's so overwhelmed. And even then it's just focused on psychological testing. And so not necessarily their mental and emotional health, right? Mm -hmm. So 
I think that it, there should be one for each grade, which would be helpful if anything, if I could make it happen, <laughs> one for each grade. But, you know, just expanding the mental health support within the staff there, I think could totally be useful. And then having teachers and mental health staff collaborate. Um, I used to work at, at an elementary school as a school-based therapist. And I was really shocked at how divided it was. Um, and I took the onus upon myself to make sure that I had coffee morning times with the teachers that my clients were in their classrooms to help give me a picture because I wasn't in the classroom, but when something was happening, they would send them directly to me. And so just bridging that gap between educators and then the mental health professionals that, you know, either are contracted by that school or on that campus, thing could be much more um, close knit and tighter um, as a wraparound. And that's truly holistic care, right? Making mm -hmm. sure that we, as the community are really collaborating as much as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Something that I've noticed when I step into the educational sphere is how much overlaps between PTSD and ADHD. Mm. Uh, and so sometimes there will be a parent or an, an educator who really thinks they have, you know, a lead on like this kid has ADHD. But if you give a kid who has PTSD medications for ADHD, you are not going to get what you were hoping to accomplish from that. Right. Um, right. You're really going to ramp their system up. You're really going to increase their anxiety. You're really going to make it harder for them to sleep and even focus in school. Uh, so getting really clear on what is trauma, right? And kids with ADHD have trauma too. And that's always fun too. Um, but reading really, really clear on that diagnosis and slowing down and seeing the whole picture for a kiddo, especially if we're considering medications. Uh, sometimes if a kiddo has a learning disability, it really presents behaviors and trauma because they've experienced not being able to do what their peers can do. They've experienced maybe having a teacher who's pointed them out is not good enough or having to be pulled from the classroom and feeling really embarrassed by that or pretending along for a while because they don't know what's wrong with them, right? And some kids are really resilient with that. And some kids really internalize that idea that there's something wrong with them. And then when they don't want to go to school anymore, mm -hmm. uh, so really teasing that out and taking the time to look at those things and what's really going on with kiddos, especially in the education system is so important. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Thank you so much for highlighting that. Um, and hopefully educators who are also parents listening to this podcast, please. <laughs> be listening. <laughs> please be listening. Take action, you know. And I, my father is an educator. He just you know, retired after 41 years of teaching. So education is really close to my heart. My fiance just got his doctorate in education. So again, like that's why I'm so passionate about education and mental health. There's so much overlap. And when working with children, I think it's something that really should not um, be siloed. Um, I think should really come together and be intertwined. Um, so those educators who are listening, those policymakers who are listening, please let's let's find ways to integrate mental health, trauma-informed care into our educational systems, institutions, classrooms, and and beyond. Let's talk a little bit about resilience. Um, I know it's been coming up uh, in our conversation throughout, but Steph, if you can just 
tell us a little bit about what exactly resilience is. Um, so maybe our listeners can really grasp that. And then um, we can also talk about what role resilience plays in a child's ability to recover from childhood trauma. Yeah. Resilience is the it factor when it comes to kids and how well they do in a traumatic environment. Um, It really comes down to, does this kiddo have the ability to get back up and try again? Does this kiddo have this innate sense of, I can get through this? But it's the idea that, that, uh, you know, kids who grow up in the exact same environment, some have a really difficult time with the same things that another kiddo can just kind of push through. And it's sometimes that old school mentality of like, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Or you can get through this, you can push through. And resilience really speaks to the fact that there are so many factors involved on how a kiddo is able to do that and how a kiddo is able to process what's going on for them. And if they have that innate resilience, they are going to be more successful in accessing those resources than a kiddo who may be really struggling and have some disadvantages. Beautifully said, Stephanie. I think, you know, resilience is something that like we continue to talk about, but we don't quite sit down and really one, understand it, but to assess whether we have it, because we just kind of live in a world, a culture, and a society where it's just go, 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 go. And sometimes you feel like you have no choice but to keep going. And that's not necessarily resilience, right? To your point, resilience is like, whether or not I can push through um, and overcome this, um, and you can. I think everyone can foster it and how important that is in having a child heal from childhood trauma is having the kid know that they can come on out on the other side. Um, if you've, you know, ever experienced any sort of trauma or loss or, you know, difficult, challenging time in your life, it feels like this is going to last forever. Um, and sometimes, you know, I I like to use like when I am practicing with clients, the lies that bind, right? And these are like the negative, you know, um, narratives that we're creating. And so one of those things is this is how I'm going to feel forever. I'm never going to get through this. Like, that's a lie, you know, like that is not true. And so if you think about a kid who's experienced childhood trauma and having them tell themselves that or having them have a negative, you know, narrative, that's really going to slow down their participation in therapy. Um, That's really going to, you know, slow down their progress, not make them motivated to take the techniques learned and implement them, right? There's so many, essentially having them give up on themselves. Um, And so that resilience is definitely needed. And I think it starts with having them know that they can get through this, reminding them constantly on a consistent basis, right? That like, it's okay to feel the way that you're feeling and just know that we're going to get through this and we'll do this together and, and that you're not alone so that they can really internalize that. And so when they're out there in the world to remember that, like, yeah, this too shall, shall pass in a sense. So I think it plays a big part in childhood trauma. Yeah. I remember back in 2020. I'm not sure if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that year. Um, <laughs> what a thinking, year. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about, especially when we were starting the school year again and realizing mm-hmm. that, you know, kids were not going to be back in the school and thinking, gosh, this is going to be such a trial by fire for resilience. 
right? We're, this is it. We're going to have to decide, you know, every single day that we're resilient and that we can get through this and that we can keep going, even though we don't know the end, even though we don't know how this is going to play out, even though it doesn't feel safe. Mm. And that was every day. And mm. really thinking about trauma. I know so many parents now who are like, I, I don't know if my kid's traumatized by COVID, right? Probably. <laughs> and like resilience is such a huge factor in that. And that, you know, kids, kids went through so much and they're still unpacking so much of that. Yes. Um, and we really want to support all of these kiddos and really kind of breaking down all of the many levels on which they had experiences that we hadn't prepared them for experiences that we couldn't promise them tomorrow is going to be different or better and working through those things and starting to really access that resilience again in terms of recognizing how much they got through and how amazing they are for for overcoming all of those challenges at their age definitely so to your point you know if i'm a parent or a caregiver just really reminding my kids um about their own resilience, modeling my own um, too as well can really help them overcome um, some of these difficulties and challenges that they face in their lives. Yeah, so shout out to all my listeners, all our listeners. (laughs) You guys got this. You are resilient. What you have is enough and just keep going. Take a break if you need to. You know, my favorite analogy to use with clients is that, you know, you're climbing up a mountain and it's important to sit and take a look at how far you've come. Um, You know, we're so focused on getting to the top, getting to the top, getting to the top. But if we don't kind of pause, take a breath and look at how far we've come, we're not going to be as motivated to keep going. the journey is actually going to start being more resentful um, because we are not acknowledging how far we have come. So let's do that more. Let's continue to acknowledge how far we've come. And I think, you know, children really need that, um, need that um, validation. But like, you know, my gosh, good job. That's great. Like, yeah, yesterday you had a tantrum, but today you didn't. That's awesome you know like what was different about today um what was helpful about today right like what did you do differently oh my gosh you did that all on your own that's fantastic great job how do you feel i'm proud of you are you proud of you um just those things can be really really helpful to to boost their self-esteem and also help support resilience Let's talk a little bit about, I know we touched on the cultural um, implications and considerations when it comes to addressing childhood trauma. Um, I'm curious, how can parents and caregivers navigate these sensitively? Um, I'm thinking more towards your queer population that you work with in your um, residential facility. How can parents learn how to navigate and support um, their kiddos who identify, you know, as non-binary or trans or on the queer spectrum that they're not quite familiar with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's kind of two different worlds that we get to juggle with that. And one is the everyday which is the use of language and the way that you're showing up with your words and being able to make a mistake and say, oops, sorry, 
correct yourself and keep moving, right? So important in those little tiny moments of saying, I can support you. I can figure out how to best be there with you in these tiny little moments. The other layer, the way I look at it is cultural, right? The LGBT community is a community and to help our kids even access that and to understand their own culture and to understand their heritage and how far they've come as a community uh, is really important too. And being on the cutting edge of like, oh, actually we stopped using that word. It, you know, it got associated with something that we, those things always change. And I always hear people be like, oh, you know, it changed again. And it's like, that's okay. Um, and in expressing that resilience, right? Of like, yeah, yesterday they were they, them, and today it's a he, he, him. And and that's okay. Um, and I'll just keep rolling with it. And and tomorrow, if you want to be a they, them, I'll, I'll change right back with you. It's just showing that you know, you're there with them. You're going to be right there alongside them, figuring it out with them, and that they don't have to have all the answers. Uh, and that they have a really beautiful community and a really beautiful culture to back them up and support them and, and help them feel like who they are. Mm -hmm. yeah. Curious about yeah. your perspective. I know you work with a lot of families of color. Yes, definitely. I always come from like the camp of like, let's celebrate culture um, because everyone can celebrate anything, right? Celebration is fun. It invites curiosity. There's something safe about it. And there's connection within celebrating, whether it's a birthday, a holiday, anniversary, whatever, like we all enjoy celebrating. And so I always say, let's find a way to celebrate diversity within different cultures. So, you know, for me working with uh, families of color, it's really learning how to understand the cultural implications to the mental health. Um, so each, you know, family culture will be different within the Black community or the AAPI community or the Hispanic Latinx community, etc. Um, really being curious about what does this part of your culture mean to you and how we can incorporate that in your mental health recovery plan um, mm -hmm. that I think is important. And also, you know, working with adopted parents, parents who adopt um, and some parents who adopt kids of color. Um, I think, you know, it is important for them to learn how to find ways to incorporate their kids' culture even though it's not their culture. Um, and so I've gotten a chance to work with some, you know, white parents working with who have adopted black kids and, you know, hair is something that's important in the black culture, right? And so really connecting them with the community and the resources, right? To a barber shop or, mm -hmm. you know, certain like hair products, right? That are really important. And, you know, that way it's a celebration and highlighting what is um, unique to them and allowing them to feel really excited about it. And so, you know, that goes with like religion, you know, culture is not just race, ethnicity or orientation, right? It's mm -hmm. everyone has culture, um, you know, even Southern California, right? Los Angeles, like being by the beach, like, you know, our clinic is by five minutes away from Santa Monica, like there's a beach culture, right? Um, and there's a city culture. And so really finding ways to highlight that and not shame that and incorporate in there and so really calling it out i think is something that's important too to be like hey i've noticed this like tell me a little bit more about that and how can i 
celebrate this with you today, right? Like, oh, our family is Catholic and you decided to be agnostic or, you know, Buddhist. Okay, you know, let's, how do we incorporate any Buddhist celebrations into that? I think that it's a very non-threatening way um, to incorporate various cultures um, into into your everyday lives. So yeah, be curious and, and just celebrate, celebrate people for who they are. Um, how they present to you and how they want to continue to show up in the world. My brain is synthesizing so many things that we just talked about. Cause I, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about how growing up in a culture where you don't feel like you fit, you use the hair as an example. Right. And that's such a perfect example of like, if you just hadn't had that resource of getting connected to someone who can help you do your hair the way that you want to do it so that you feel like you, right? All of a sudden we have a little tea trauma, right? Yes. And we're not coming and saying like, parents, how come you didn't do that? Right? It's just like, gosh, you didn't have that resource. Gosh, maybe you didn't even know. Gosh, it wasn't available to you. And then this kid all of a sudden has a trauma because they grew up thinking, why is my hair different? Why doesn't my hair do what I want it to do? Why has no one taught me how to do this with my hair? Yes. And somebody from the outside might say, well, it's just hair. And somebody from the inside can see how much of your identity is really impacted by that. Um, And how our queer kids, right, might grow up in a culture that isn't really accepting of queer kids. Um, And those boundaries that we talked about earlier, like if they're too rigid, then that kid can't find a way to belong in their own culture. Mm-hmm. And that is traumatic and that is difficult and that is so, so challenging to their identity. And so then we need to make a little more fluid boundaries of how can we still have you be a part of our family? How can we respect you within our family? How can we create space with you and belonging, which builds resilience? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Stephanie. I see what you're doing here. Bring everything full circle. Listeners, did you hear that? Come on. I love it. I love it. I really, I really appreciate that perspective because that also like reminds me how important it is just to like make sure people know it's okay to ask, (laughs) you know, it's okay to ask questions. It's, it's okay. And that's where the curiosity comes from. You don't know what you don't know. Um, So it's really important to, you know, ask your kids, like, how can I be a part of this and really be vulnerable and saying, I don't understand this is new for me or this is uncomfortable, but I'm going to try. Um, and to be honest, that's that's what they need. Um, just try. You don't have to be perfect. I think just, just acknowledging that you want to be a part of it is really important. Oh, yeah. Another thing that stands out to me about working with, you know, families of color, I think there's a culture where it's like we keep everything inside um, and we don't share with others. So um, sometimes the community aspect within a community can be difficult. Um, And so, you know, wanting to encourage others or even everyone, right, to find ways to empower your provider um, with information that is important to you. So for example, if, you know, for a Latinx community, you know, food, um, is really important, um, in the culture at times, and that's how they show their love, right, through a lot of that. I think, you know, educating your, um, psychiatrist or mental health professionals or school that this is a big 
part of how we show love. This is a part of X, Y, Z. That's also really important. And so like letting providers, I will speak, you know, for us that like, we're open to hearing how we can best serve you and your family. And when it comes um, from, or we have a different culture than, you know, we are presenting, right? It's, it's our responsibility as professionals to do our own work um, and to go out and seek those resources and to would love to hear from, you know, the families, parents and caregivers that we're working with. How can we acknowledge um, your culture and really, really bring it into treatment? And so I think that's something that people don't hear often of. They think that, you know, when working with, you know, mental health professionals that they have all the answers and also sometimes intimidation when they don't have specific presentations um, that match or mirror um, their own presentations, right? And so that's why some, you know, families might only seek to look for providers that might look like them or have similarities, you know, out of fear of not being understood. And to, you know, to acknowledge that like all of us have been trained and all of us um, are open and willing to learn a little more about what your specific culture look like um, and how we can best support that. So, alrighty. Well, wrapping up here, my last question to you is thinking about parents and caregivers working together as a team. So still in our um, community oriented uh, conversations we've been having, but this is more, you know, within the family system. Um, how can they um, parents and caregivers work together to provide consistent support for a child dealing with trauma. Yeah, so important, so helpful, so hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think, you know, one of the biggest ways is sharing with each other their experience of what's going on. If they are feeling frustrated or overwhelmed, having somebody else in your corner to be able to share that with can be so impactful. And then finding a way to kind of tap out and tap in when you are at your limit, having a partner to say like, you know what, I'm really triggered right now. I feel trapped. I have to step out of this so that I'm not further damaging, you know, what's going on with our kiddo and having somebody who's safe to be able to do that with. That part's hard. It's oh, really yeah. hard to build that partnership. And it's actually really common that kids will uh, land in residential and then all of a sudden their parents are having marital issues because they were so focused on their kiddo that they weren't seeing each other um, or that the conflict that was present in the marriage uh, was kind of being shoved onto the kiddo because the kiddo was so cute. And so recognizing, you know, as a caregiving team, whether that's marriage or somewhere else, that that relationship is foundational to supporting mm. the kid. Um, and sometimes that means ending the relationship if that's what the kiddo needs for that best support. Like we are supportive of all sorts of constellations, uh, but the level of impact that that relationship has on a kiddo with trauma is is phenomenal. Yeah, definitely echo that too. I, I love how you highlighted, even if that means not staying together. Um, that's something that is a recurrent theme that I 
that I hear we're staying together because of the kids or staying together because of the kids. And what's happening is that the kids are miserable <laughs> with, you know, uh, their caregivers or parents staying together. Right. And it's actually detrimental um, to their mental health. And so really taking a hard look at what is going to be helpful for you. And that touches back to getting that individual therapy support as a parent or a caregiver, getting that couples therapy, if that's something that's helpful is, you know, really working on yourself and that relationship outside of the kid is what is going to be really, really beneficial. So want to echo everything that you just said and, and highlight that the relationship um, within your your team, your caregiving team is extremely important. Um, don't forget date nights. You know, if this is this is a partnership, right, and, or, or a marriage, don't forget that or or brunches, right? If it's a grandma and a daughter that's, you know, supporting a kiddo, right? Don't forget, you know, manis and petties with, with your mom, right? Or if it's, you know, two sisters, um, you know, supporting kids, their kids and raising them together, right? That's important. Whatever you can do within the caregiving team to strengthen and bond the relationship um, is really important. And don't forget to have fun. Um, this is stressful. <laughs> it, it, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, the journey can be challenging and, you know, forgetting that like to have fun, I think is something that is important to remember to keep integrating back in is like, have a good time. Don't feel guilty that you're taking a couple hours off for yourself to go see a movie or to go, you know, to a concert or go to a birthday dinner. Um, those are the things that fill your cup. Um, and so maybe sharing that um, within other people is important too as well. Yeah. And as we touch in with like the idea of trauma and the brain and I can nerd out for a minute of, you know, trauma continually returns us to those neural networks that tell us we're not safe and we're not okay and we're not good enough, right? But to also build the neural networks of life can be fun, life can be enjoyable. These are the people I feel connected to. This is the place that I love to go is also trauma work, right? Going back to the beach every summer, if that's where you go, and creating those routines and creating the places that feel safe and calm and creating the activities that feel enjoyable. All of that is also part of trauma work because we're working on those neural networks in the opposite direction, right? And giving our brains an opportunity to access that joy. Great. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Well, this concludes um, our podcast today, talking about childhood drama. For, first off, thank you so much, Stephanie, for being here, being my co-host, and but also the work that you are doing in your amazing program at Bend. I know that the kiddos and the families really, really appreciative, and you guys are helping them to get create joy and heal generations within themselves. So thank you so much for, for the work that you're doing. Thank you. It sounds like you have an amazing office down in LA and we're working really hard with families and marginalized communities to really build them up and create, create healing generations. Yes, <laughs> but um, see what we did there? <laughs> appreciate you. So thank you listeners so, so much for, for stopping by and taking this time. Take care of you. 
Um, know that it's going to be okay and remind yourself of your resilience each and every single day. Until next time, Baba Hawthorne and Stephanie Lucas, over and out. Ha <laughs> ha